0: Let us turn now to the Lord in prayer. We do bless you, our great God. We give you praise that you are our creator. We gave you thanks for that uh, throughout this Thanksgiving season. Thanking you for the, the beauty that you have created around us. Giving you thanks for all the blessings of this life, of family of friends, of good memories. Now we worship you and give you praise our God for our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, who is the light of this world? one in whom we place all of our hope. For it is in him He who has come and has freed us from the clutches of death, who has freed us from slavery to sin, who was born under the law that he might redeem us, who are captive under the law. We had no hope without him, but with him we have all hope. We thank you for the one who came into a dark world and has shown forth the light of the gospel. And all the more that we pray that we being the light that shows forth Jesus Christ to this world. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who has come into this world, who has convicted us of sin, who has opened our eyes, opened our hearts to Jesus Christ, that we might receive him by faith. Oh, we give you thanks, our God, for all that we have, for the riches that we now possess in Jesus Christ. We do confess before you that though we are rich, we act as at many times as though we are poor. That though we have been made righteous, covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, have been justified in him, Yet we often turn to our own works, uh, look to ourselves to win your favor. We confess this before you, that we have not trusted in our Lord and in his work as we ought to have done. We must confess that we have not loved you above all things, that we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves, all the more we give you thanks, our God, for sending to us your beloved, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has won that victory for us upon the cross, who has tamed for us the forgiveness of our sins. It is in his name, it is under the work that he has done, that we may lift before you our petitions and pray. To pray for this world. Pray for a world in which there is much trouble, much violence, much enmity, as we are reminded again and again. We do pray for the peace of your spirit uh, to be upon areas of our land that is especially troubled. We lift uh, before you the, uh, the town of Ferguson. and We pray for peace to be in that community. There might be reconciliation. We pray for the churches that are in that town. We pray that they may be uh, lights for the gospel of Christ, that you might so use them to be peacemakers. We pray for our Father, for uh, those who are in authority, have great burdens placed upon them, grant them wisdom and how to, to be used to, to bring peace and order in, the, in that town. We do pray, our Father, for all those who are in government positions, those who are civil servants, those who must exercise authority in our country, and we pray for them. Their great responsibilities are laid upon them. Their are great dangers placed upon them. And we pray for your spirit to guide them, to protect them. Our Father, we think of this Advent season in which there are many out there who do not know Jesus Christ, who have nothing to celebrate. All the more that we pray that the gospel will go forth. We thank you that you have sent many throughout this world, and you have given us the privilege to support them. and pray for your blessings upon them, Pray that they would be able to bear fruit in their labors. Pray that uh, those who are far away from their homelands, that you will especially comfort them, strengthen them, keep them ever faithful unto you. We pray for those, our Father, who who grieve the loss of loved ones in this past year. Pray for your comfort, mercies and blessings upon them. We lift up Gail Prince, who just this past week has lost her father, and pray for your comfort of her, of her mother, her sister, for all of the family. We pray for comfort uh, for the daughter-in-law of the Round Trees, who has lost her father, Kenny Crank, and pray uh, for your comfort for her and for all of that, of that family. Our Father, we pray for those who are struggling with illnesses. We pray for those who have chronic pain. We pray for those who, who know that they are not likely to recover. All the more, Father, thank you. Thank you that they are in your hands. No one is alone. That no one is outside of your care, and your comfort, outside of your will. And all the more may they know your presence, your peace, your goodness in their lives. And may we as a church family uh, physically show that, show the love of Christ, show the comfort of the Father. And then our Father, you know the needs of each of us who are here in this sanctuary. You know what is going on in our hearts in our minds you know the troubles that we face you know the joys of our lives you know what we don't know is going to take place in the future all the more then we pray that you would minister to us now that as we have come to offer you worship we pray that you will feed your sheep lift us up comfort us Exhort us, convict us all that we need, that your spirit knows that we need. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now Our scripture uh, today is uh, Galatians it's chapter uh, 4, looking particularly at verses 4 and 5. And we've been greatly blessed by the music here. And I'd hate to make you, you're welcome to stay here. But if you would be like to be more comfortable like your colleague there, you're welcome to do that. Thank you. I just know I wouldn't want to have to have everybody having to sit very still for, for 30 minutes. Okay. But if you look at me at Galatians 4, and I'm actually going to just read a few more to give it verses to give it in context. So I'm going to read verses uh, 1 through 7. If you're using that insert, you will see um, it having verses 4 and 5. And let us hear the word of God. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Well, is there anything more wonderful than the birth of a baby? The only thing more wonderful than the birth of of a, of a baby is the birth of a grandbaby. But um, I pr- suppose that perhaps, it's, perhaps this is why Christmas, over time, has ended up overshadowing all other holidays. I mean, birth is a cause for celebration. And no birth is more celebrated, of course, than that of our Lord. But though every birth contains wonder and it contains mystery it's the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the wonder. It's the mystery to celebrate. And we're going to be looking at uh, three passages over this Advent uh, season that speak specifically of Jesus being born with the intent of, of learning from their different perspectives of, of what this joyful mystery involves, what it means for us. And this morning, we're looking at what is meant by Jesus being born under the law. Now, we're landing in the middle of a long instruction by by the Apostle Paul. Or perhaps I should say a long scolding. If we thought Jonah had gotten angry, I think Paul even tops Jonah. Now, Paul was not so angry that he wanted to die like Jonah did. But he was actually ready to pronounce curses upon some Specific, some teachers who were leading the people astray and the primary difference between these two men between Jonah and Paul is that Jonah's was an unrighteous anger Paul's actually is a righteous anger now the issue had to do with the role of Jewish law in conferring salvation or to express it in another way how does one obtain acceptance by God now, you might admit, might recall, those of you who were here two Sundays ago, that I mentioned that the first controversy of the church was whether or not Gentiles could be included. Or was the work of the Messiah restricted to God's covenant people, namely the Jewish people? Now, there were two council uh, meetings about this. And the first church council concluded that, yes, Gentiles could be received. And this led to a second issue. Okay, Gentiles can be received, but do they need to take on the same Jewish customs and laws in order to be saved? In essence, do they need to first become Jews? So the second church council resolved this issue by declaring that Gentiles did not have to take this upon themselves. Now, in this letter to the Galatians, however, maybe it it took place before this council. Maybe it took place before the council's word could get out to all of the territory. But this is what this controversy is all about. Must Gentiles become Jews to be saved? Now, Paul's been explaining here the role of the law because that's the issue that is here. He's explaining what has always been the purpose of the law and its limitations. And the primary point he's making is that the law had never, it had never been an instrument of salvation. Okay. And this is important to us because even today there's confusion about this. Perhaps you're familiar with the term dispensationalism. It was popularized by the Scofield Bible. All those notes in the Scofield Bible are presenting a dispensationalist interpretation. And what that says is that there were different dispensations by which God provided salvation throughout the ages. And there was the dispensation of the Jewish nation in which God provided salvation through the law, through a sacrificial system. We're in the church age. And even our age is like a parenthesis, because once again, supposedly when Jesus comes again, there'll be another thousand years rule, and that will be the Jewish age again. The temple will be rebuilt. You'll have the laws, the sacrificial system, all again. So basically what he's saying is that the covenant for the Jewish nation, the covenant for the church, two separate covenants, have nothing or very little to do with each other. This is a fundamental misunderstanding of the law. That's what Galatians is explaining. The law never had the power to save. As Paul says clearly in chapter 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. By works of the law... No one will be justified. Even for Jews, following the law did not save them. And so, therefore, to add this burden, which is Paul's point here, now to Gentiles, well, that's a travesty. As Peter had spoken to, to that second church council, he had said this. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. So, what then is the purpose of the law? Paul speaks of it in two ways that of a judge and that of a guardian. As a judge, the law, the law locks up all guilty offenders. And by the way, all of the world is guilty. So, so Paul tells us this in chapter 3, verse 22. The scripture, meaning the law, imprisoned everything under sin. And then he goes on to say, we were held captive under the law. So the law pronounced us guilty of sin. It then locked us up so that we remain prisoners of sin. The law did not justify us. It did not declare us not guilty, it did not rescue us, nor did it provide a way for us to being released. Now, the law also served as a guardian. In this way, the law functions in the role of a guardian uh, of a child. And that child is having to wait until he reaches legal age to access his inheritance and all of his privileges. Until that time, the child must abide by the laws of the state and the rules of the guardian. He might be the heir of great wealth, of high position, but until he reaches the legal age, Paul is saying here that he is in essence no better off than a slave of that culture because he has to do whatever he is told. Now the verses preceding our own text explains this. Let me reread them again. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So again, to to repeat, so the law, contrary to justifying us, actually condemns us and locks us up. The law, instead of freeing us, actually keeps us under subjection as our guardian. Now, this is true for both Jew and Gentile. Where, then, is our hope? How do we ever get justified? How do we ever get out of prison? when we do reach the time or when do we ever reach that age that we come into in our inheritance? That is what the text answers. Finally, we come to verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Our hope, lies not in our ability to follow the law or to escape from the law. Our hope lies in the Son of God, Christ the Messiah. It is he who redeems us so that we are no longer under law's condemnation, so that we are no longer in the condition of slaves. So yes, it is Christ who redeems us, as verse 5 states. Verse 4 Presents the conditions that were necessary for Jesus to redeem us. So let's look again, kind of phrase by phrase. It first says, "But when the fullness of time had come," what is this fullness of time? It is the end of the law's role as imprisoner and guardian. So basically, God has said to law, "Thank you for your service, my son." will take over now and so God sent forth his son. There had been a release date from prison all along. There had been a date that was set for obtaining our inheritance and that date was set for when God would send forth his son to earth and achieve our redemption. The age had all along been leading up to this time, the age of the law. And indeed, the law had actually been preparing us for this time. Now, how so? Well, as one who was locked us in jail, it had first exposed us as being guilty before God. Without the law, we do not even know that we need redemption. The sheer number of laws in all of their forms that are spelled out through the scriptures they deter us from taking kind of a glib view of our standing before God. It's easy enough for us to look at the Ten Commandments. I remember even being in a Sunday school class and hearing someone looking at the Ten Commandments and saying, I, I fulfill them all. I, I, don't, I don't commit adultery. I don't steal. Uh, I guess he even had to say he didn't lie. Well, it's easy enough to think that we have done that until we see law after law that interpret these commandments. Until we read in the law how time and and time and in variety and variety of ways that we can break these commandments. It's easy enough to think that we are fulfilling the Ten Commandments until we're given glimpses of God and his holiness. Or we read of his judgments against sinners. We read about the, the, the enormous sacrificial system that was needed to protect sinners uh, who were guilty before God. Psalm 24 says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Who can appear before God? And it says he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Well, who then has clean hands and a pure heart when one reads the law. Well, the psalm answers its own question, the king of glory. That who is, is the one who is able to come before the Lord. He is the one who is strong in battle, who comes into the city and wins his victory. Well, as the psalm gives the answer, so does the law. The law points us to the king, to the messiah to the Redeemer who can make us righteous before God. The law leads us to despair of ourselves. We can't do it. And it forces us to look to our one hope that is outside of ourselves. Now, the law also tutors God's people. It's from the laws that we learn what a righteous life is to be like. In a sacrificial system, we we comprehend the necessity and the meaning of substitutionary atonement, of what it is to to have a, a sacrifice that is offered up to God in place of us. Through the stories that are in the law, we see what a righteous king and a redeemer is like. And so over the years, as the time grew nearer, God's people were being prepared to recognize the Messiah and his work. And then there was another role that the the law played in preparing the people. It acted as a restraint on them as they waited for the time of the Messiah. For without the law, sin would have just spread without constraint. God's covenant nation sinned greatly, but even so, It continued to exist. It continued to maintain a remnant because of the law's ability to expose sin and to point the people to God, to lead them to keep repenting and to repenting and to exercise a a measure of control on their behavior. So the law had good purpose, but salvation was not part of that purpose. The law simply could not justify a soul that was guilty before God. That is where the Son of God comes in. So God sends forth his Son. Now, what are the conditions that had to be fulfilled? First, born of woman. He had to be incarnated. He had to take on flesh, be born in the flesh. And so he had to be fully human, fully man. And speaking of John the Baptist, Jesus had said, there was no one born of women as great as him. And Simply what he's saying is that term born of woman means being a human being. So as God's son, we know that Jesus Christ is divine, that he was sent by God the Father indicates his pre-existence. And then that born of woman means he's fully divine and that he is fully man. Now, what's the significance of him having to take on human flesh? Let me read from Hebrews 2, 14 to 16. It sheds light on this. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, meaning us, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And we're moving into deep mystery here, but here's the central point. In order to deliver those who are of flesh and blood, it was necessary for our Redeemer, to have flesh and blood to deliver us from the power of death he had to in his flesh and blood wage battle against death he had come in that flesh to do battle on the cross against death against the devil he engaged in battle by offering his own flesh to god as an atoning sacrifice for our sins Remember, sin was our jailer. The law had thrown us into prison, and sin was keeping us there. Sin had turned us into slaves. And until we became justified before God, we were going to remain in that prison, ever enslaved to sin. Now, from the law, we learn that only a pure sacrifice could do that work can make that kind of sacrifice that would lead to our justification. But then again, we're asked a question. Who has the clean hands? Who has the pure heart to be that sacrifice? Well, obviously, we've already given the answer. It's the Son of God. But wait a minute. It is one thing to be perfect in heaven where the effects of sin cannot touch you. A real sacrifice must have flesh, and he must have proven himself in the flesh if it is to redeem human flesh. Well, again, that is what God the Son accomplished. Let me read again in Hebrews, and this time 5, verses 7 through 9. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, to him, that is to God, who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Now here's the point. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. You see, he had to to be obedient, he had to be perfect As he suffered in the flesh. And that was the reason that he had to come and take on our own bodies. And so, he is born of woman. And he had to furthermore be born under the law. He had to go through the sufferings that were produced by the law's interaction with law-breaking sin. Okay? Sin has condemned us. The sin, I mean, the law has condemned us. We're enslaved to sin. Uh, so Christ wears flesh that then felt that death infection. Okay. He had to live among people who were covered in sin, he had to suffer their sinful reactions to him. He had to be tempted by their same sin filled lust. He had to fulfill all of the laws, all of the laws, and he had to perfectly love God, perfectly love his neighbors. He had to be holy just as his Father in heaven is holy. And he had to do it in the flesh on this earth. And what happened? He did it. He did it all. He lived the perfect life. And so he mounted onto that cross as a pure, acceptable sacrifice. And on that cross, he redeemed his people. He opened up the jail cells. He mediated new adoption papers that transferred us from the devil to God. So that even now we can receive and begin to enjoy our inheritance. Now he left one more step to take place one more step for our full justification before God, and that was the exercise of faith. He says, or Paul says in chapter 2, verse 16 of Galatians, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. In order to be justified by faith in Christ And not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So Christ was born under the law. And under that law, he redeemed us who were under the law. Is that not glorious? So then, why were the Galatian Christians trying to get back under the law? This is is what's driving Paul crazy. Why were they getting circumcised? Circumcision was the sign of of that other covenant, of the Mosaic covenant. What's with that? Why were they adhering to, he says in here, to religious days of the old covenant? Why were they dressing themselves up with Jewish law regulations? Why did they think that by becoming Jews... By observing the Jewish law, that that would somehow make them righteous before God. Had Jesus, did he fail in his efforts to fulfill the law? Did he actually commit a sin or something? Had he failed to do all that was necessary to redeem his people? Because that is what anyone is saying. By turning to the Jewish laws to complete their salvation. Now, the truth is that we know that no one is saved unless they're justified. And no one, no one is justified if they try to earn it through the law. There is only one means of justification. That is, that is by faith and the work of Jesus Christ to win our justification on the cross. And so to add to that faith by our own efforts... Paul is saying this, it's not only fruitless, it is an affront to our own Redeemer. Jesus Christ was not born that he might enhance our efforts to be justified before God. He was not born merely to kind of open the jail cells in hopes that, you know, maybe we'll get up on our own feet and, and walk through and out of the jail. He did not appear as our advocate to win our release before some cosmic parole board and showing how, you know, actually they've been behaving pretty well while they were in jail. Now, Jesus Christ was born under woman, under long, so that he could smash open those jail cells, so that he could rescue us, go in there and pull us out from the clutches of Satan and of death. He was born to fight a battle on the cross as our Redeemer King. And either, either he won that battle or he did not. Either the law was right to point us to a savior or the law has served no purpose at all. Now, we're not Galatians who are literally trying to become Jews. But we can't be just as much as in danger by our efforts to, to prove to God that we were worthy of Christ's sacrifice. We too can try to make the law to do what it never was intended to do, to make us worthy of salvation. Now again, the law is good. It's good at showing us the holy standards of God so so we'll know what are the right ways to live. It's been pretty good at restraining us to some degree from sin, but it is especially good. Remember, this is the purpose at showing us how inaccessible a pure, righteous life is. We can't do it so that we should despair of having any confidence in ourselves how you know, many times we'll do that? we say, well, I don't know if I'm being good enough. I don't know if God could accept me because of this. Well, that's fine. That's what you're supposed to be saying. And then you're supposed to be turning to Jesus Christ and saying, oh, thank. Thank God that he has sent his son, Jesus Christ. We are to strive. We should always strive to live good, righteous lives. We should strive to follow the moral law of God. But even the law says to us, don't look at me. Look at Jesus Christ. Look to your Redeemer. And if you find anything in me, find the hope. Find the foreshadowing. Find the promises of your Redeemer. It is through faith. Faith alone. Lay hold of the justification that only the work of our Lord Jesus Christ supplies, because it is for this purpose that He was born under the law to redeem us. We give you praise, our God, that in the fullness of time you sent your Son to who was born under woman, born under the law to redeem us. We were who were enslaved in prison under the law. Keep our eyes ever focused upon our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.